Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. In this episode, I had the chance to speak with Wallace J. Nichols. Jay is an award-winning author, a marine biologist, an Airbnb superhost, and a fun-loving dad. In the podcast, we talk a lot about his incredible book and all the work that he is achieving around Blue Mind. Have you discovered your Blue Mind yet? Jay believes if we look at the planet through the lens of water and our human attraction and association with it, then we can start to make a much more positive impact. I really hope you enjoy this episode that was recorded over Skype with Wallace in California and myself in Sydney. Thanks for tuning in to the Ocean Impact Podcast. Okay, very excited to have on the podcast today a fantastic guest in Wallace J. Nichols, but uh, known as Jay. Um, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's really good to see you. Yeah, so look, it's, uh, it's the start of April in 2020 and, and the world is, um, is, a, is a peculiar place right now. Um, how, how are you feeling? How's, how's your life going? Wow. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, um, I feel very fortunate in a lot of ways. I'm with my family. We live by the ocean. Uh, everybody in my immediate family as well, so far. Um, and probably I, f I feel very useful in this moment. There's a lot of anxiety and fear and uncertainty uh, and I feel like my life's work is very useful. So that's um, better than feeling helpless. So I feel very useful, I guess. That would be the word. Great. Well, that's really going to be so much, I think, of what we talk about today, Jay, is your life's work and and really this, um, this culmination right now when you do recognise that people are are really feeling not only anxiety and dealing with things a lot on their own personal um, fronts, but also I think uh, the global population, humanity, is really feeling uh, some anxiety. So that's where we're going to be taking our listeners today. We're going to be diving into the ocean and into water and 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 learning from you. So I want this to be all about you. So let's let's start there. Let's learn a little bit about you. What is it about water? Where did it begin? Like, tell us about your life's work. Well, you know, let's, we'll, I'll go deep straight out the gate here. The, um, so when I was born, I was adopted by my parents. And, uh, and what I've learned somewhat recently is that the adoption process or the, you know, the foster ch child experience um, can have a lot of anxiety just in that. And I always felt as a, as a young person, as a kid, that water was my safe place. Water, water was my home. Water was where I got, I could feel held, and um, I, and I, I stuttered as a kid, and I was definitely an introvert. So being in the water was, I felt more alive than in the air, and uh, that, that it, that uh, that feeling basically led me to want to become a marine biologist because it's one of the few careers that 
you, you know, get to be near in on and underwater all the time or a lot of the time. That may be in pro surfer and a pro surfer was not an option. So <laughs> I went with marine biologist and uh, pursued that for a while and really enjoyed, enjoyed it and uh, enjoyed making contributions to sea turtle biology and conservation and plastic pollution and uh, worked on climate change and sea level rise and fisheries bycatch and lots of science, lots of NGOs, uh, you know the routine there. And uh, I got to wondering more about the science of that initial uh, inspiration, I guess, that I had as a kid to be near, in, on, and underwater all the time. And I wondered about that because if, if that if that feeling was the driving force of my entire life, it must be the driving force of your life and others. And that would be useful to understand, you know, if um, those of us who commit our entire lives to taking better care of our waters and oceans and our planet, um, I want to know why. And uh, so as I pursued that as a scientist and I, I um, I didn't find a lot of answers. <laughs> I thought there would be a book <laughs> that I could read and, and that would answer that, that question. What happens to your, your mind and body when you're here in, on, and underwater? And I couldn't find the book. And um, tried to get some other people to write it, some really smart neuropsychologists. Uh, pitched to a guy named Dr. Oliver Sacks. And he is a brilliant man, was a brilliant man for passed away and um, he uh, is a waterman as well and he said it's a fine idea you do it when I pitched him the idea that he should do it <laughs> and then that was the beginning of the last 10 years of my life really writing uh, researching writing and now sharing what we refer to as blue mind which is the science behind that feeling that's um the feeling that really is why we know each other. Without your blue mind meeting my blue mind, we would be doing this podcast. Uh, I would probably say the same for everybody listening. Uh, that feeling is the reason why you're listening to this podcast. Um, you're being paid to listen to this podcast. You're probably not being paid to make this podcast, nor am I be being paid to participate in it. It's an emotional uh, drive. And so really that's, that's what I've spent the last 10 years about. And I think that's what we're going to talk about here. Or we can talk about sea turtles too. I love to talk about turtles, but um, <laughs> maybe another time. <laughs> now we're going to try and jam it all in, Jay. Uh, it's, it's too good an opportunity to miss. So look, obviously speaking about your book, Blue Mind, and I've, uh, I've got my copy here and I definitely encourage everyone out there listening in to get their hands on a copy. I'll, um, I'll happily share mine with anyone. Um, tell us about it, how it sums up uh, your passion and your work over this last decade, as you mentioned. Yeah, so I think the, the, um, the observation is that, broadly speaking, we have undervalued our waters and our oceans. And one of the reasons why we've gotten that equation so wrong is because we haven't described the true benefits of a healthy ocean and healthy waters. And by that, I mean, in I went to the 24th grade, uh, went to a lot of school, 
and I never learned anything. Not one day, not one word about the cognitive, emotional, psychological, social, physical, creative, and spiritual health benefits of our oceans, our lakes, and our rivers. Never came up. Um, it's very important. It's part of it's part of the set of values. Of course, there are economic values and ecological values, intrinsic values, educational values. But we almost completely leave out the emotional value uh, or the emotional health value of our oceans. And it turns out everybody I know derives vast emotional health benefits from their water, whatever their water is. It could be a lake, a river, a pond, a pool, a bay, an ocean, bathtub, a spa, whatever you, whatever you got. All about, maybe, if you're lucky. And so if we, when we leave that out, we undervalue. And when we undervalue anyone or anything, bad things happen every single time in human history. Every time we've undervalued a group of people, a gender, a race, a community, um, and certainly whenever we undervalue nature, bad things happen. And so the work is really about fixing or updating or improving that that value equation by adding this blue mind piece. And so, you know, the kind of the point of it all would be that everybody learns blue mind, that all NGOs include it in their talking points. Um, rather than just say, hey, 71% of the planet is covered with water, it gives us half our oxygen, seafood, drives the economy, regulates climate holds biodiversity, don't stop there, uh, gives us romance, uh, it gives us peace and happiness, it calms us when we need to be calmed, it soothes us, it absorbs our grief, uh, this gives us, boosts our creativity, um, gives us solitude when we need solitude, uh, gives ins inspiration. That's all valuable. And it's maybe harder to put a dollar value on but we can put a word value on it. And um, so that's really, you know, we get right to it at the beginning here. If people sort of tail off and don't listen to our whole conversation, here's the ask. Uh, don't leave it out anymore. Not okay. Very irresponsible. If you are a, an ocean professional, environmental professional, and you leave it out in 2020, that's very irresponsible. You're undervaluing something that, should not be undervalued. So I want to be edgy about it, but that would be this is about as that's about as harsh as I get, and it's about as loud as I get. <laughs> it's uh it's coming through loud and clear, Jay. So obviously we could talk for a long time about the range of pressures that we are placing on the ocean, but if you were to sum up the ones that you're most concerned about, um, how would you articulate those? Uh, well, I, the way I usually describe the ocean crisis is that we've, we've put too much in, that shouldn't go in, we've taken too much out, and we haven't protected the edge, the edgy places, which are you know, generally the, the most productive places where the most life occurs. So the continental shelves, the, the kelp forests, the coral reefs, and so on. Not to leave out the, the deep open ocean, but those edgier places, uh, those convergence areas. So the action is 
less in, less out, protect the edge. I'm going to simplify ocean conservation as far as I possibly can. Less in, less out, protect the edge. Um, but I think I think our crisis is is a higher level or or deeper than that. I think the ocean crisis stems from uh, a lack of creative uh, leadership and uh, a lack of um, innovation and uh, a lack of apex leaders, you know, people who are not looking over their shoulder to see what everybody else is doing or not asking permission from funders to do things, but really just moving forward on things they know need to happen. I think that's probably the biggest crisis in our uh, in the field and um, you know the people who uh, get things done without permission that need to get done. We need more of that. And, um, can we, we have to... those? Can we have those apex leaders? Like I, I feel a bit of nostalgia there that you know once upon a time apex leaders thrived. Um, have they disappeared? Is it just a bit of a phase we're going through now where we're not allowing them to? to reach that apex position. Um, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think there's I think there's a number of factors. It's a really, really important question. And I, you know, I don't I don't know the whole answer, but I, what I see, I see people with great ideas. I see um, innovators with great ideas. And then they go ask the funders and the funders say no, and then it stops. Uh, or at least it's put on hold sometimes for decades um, or they, you know, they ask permission in some other way. And I, and I think, uh, or they do focus groups and the whole concept gets flattened into exactly what we have. Another version of what we already have. Um, when, when the individual or the group started with a really good idea, and a lot of energy for it, and they were unstoppable, then, then they hit the wall, which may be the system. Uh, and that's not just in, in, in the ocean space or in, in the environmental space. That happens, kind of happens everywhere. Um, but if you ask people who were able to push through that wall or swim through that wall, I like to say, how they did it, um, it's not because they had personal wealth or a trust fund. It's because they had a... a uh, something unstoppable, something burning that just said, I'm, I will do gigs on the side. I'll wait tables. I, you know, you see it more in artists and musicians. Ask any artist and musician who you would call success right now. And they will tell you a similar kind of story that they waited tables, they bagged groceries, they scrubbed pots and pans for years, maybe, while they honed their dream. And I think uh, maybe we have a generation of, of environmental entrepreneurs who aren't willing to wash dishes uh, or crowdfund for a decade. Um, I mean, in my case, we do Airbnb. We have an Airbnb funds my work and Patreon funds my work, not grants, not donors, not sponsors, not celebrities. Um, so if you're not willing to do that, you know, maybe live in a yurt and eat top ramen for a few years. Uh, you know, eat avocados in 
live on avocados and water. If you're not willing to do that, then you get sucked into what the grant givers are funding in that moment. Um, but I think also the, you know, the massive dependence on analytics and data and um, focus group and kind of getting brings everybody into this kind of band of here's here's what society says is valuable and um and what we need you know maybe some people working on the outliers uh, just on the road from here is silicon valley and um if you ever apply for a job there they're going to ask you to tell stories about your failures and if you don't have some real good answers about all the times you failed you're probably not going to get the job. And I think in the environmental community, we don't, we bury our failures. We don't talk about them. We hide them. We don't report on them. We don't put them in our, our, our reports to funders. We don't talk about them at conferences. Um, we don't explain, as a senior scientist, we don't explain our failures to our students very well. They don't go into our publications, our papers, our reports, uh, our conferences. And we all have them. And so we don't learn from them. And that's, that's innovation, really failing more than you succeed and discussing the failures very openly. Uh, and so we, we have examples of, of um, entrepreneurial cultures where that's much better. And I think we can learn from that. Um, but we did, a, we did a session at the International Sea Turtle Symposium one year. We called it uh, Deep Wisdom from Epic Failure. We asked eight senior scientists to tell their biggest failure story that nobody knows. And they got 10 minutes and one slide. So it wasn't about PowerPoint. They got one image, 10 minutes. Uh, we had an open bar <laughs> and we helped. And people got comfortable. It was in the evening. It was awesome. I, I still hear from people. That was the best scientific conference session people had ever attended in their career. And it was just really honest and really raw. And thankfully, that group of researchers was very, very open, um, vulnerable about their epic failures. And uh, I think the, the younger generation learned a lot from that. Um, so I think that's part of it, maybe, is, you know, being willing to fail and being willing to share your failures and not being afraid that the funder will go away uh, if you come back and say, I failed badly, but I've learned a lot. Um, and our, you know, our grant cycles are typically one or two years. Uh, we don't invest in 10-year projects. Um, that's in largely um, driven by the funders. It's hugely problematic. Um, so one of the reasons I crowdfund my work is that I want to think in terms of decades and I'd rather have less money for over 10 years than more money over two years. Um, so we're kind of getting, getting on to getting on to some side topics here, but no, that's all good. So let's, um, I think that's obviously at the core of, of, of what we're trying to do at Ocean Impact Organization is, is bring innovation and opportunity into, into the ocean space and really look at how 
if there is people out there, those uh, entrepreneurs with the big ideas who can improve the state of the world's ocean, then why aren't we throwing everything at them right now? Like we know enough, we've been talking about that already in this podcast, like the the jury has come up with their decision. We need to restore and regenerate our beautiful planet ocean. So are you seeing any, you know, you spoke then about what it is that we could be learning from Silicon Valley and other startup cultures. Are you seeing anything that's giving you a bit of an indication that it's heading in that direction? Is there any um, examples that spring to mind about where you think maybe we've come over that hump and we're, we're starting to realize that now? I, you know, I see a lot of um, youth energy, but it's a younger, a younger approach generally. Uh, yeah, seeing the arts and storytelling and media um, come to play and in a really beautiful way I mean, the, the visual side not just the photography, like the stuff behind you, but the the artwork. Um, think about 20 years ago, we didn't really have very many celebrities and musicians and artists um, helping with the ocean. And now you kind of have to. I mean, it's sort of a rite of passage. If you're, I mean, if you're a, a surfing musician, you're going to have a platform uh, related to ocean health. And uh, it's a it's become more cool. So that's that's happening. That's exciting. Um, I think there's a, I mean there are certainly more billionaires exploring the ocean right now than ever before. You know, building their submarines and doing expeditions and building their mega yachts to go do more expeditions. Uh, hopefully that translates to protection and not just more. Deep sea extraction, that would be my fear, is that if you're a billionaire and you're putting money into the deep ocean, you might be interested in the, the mineral resources, uh, not so much the biodiversity. Um, so, yeah, I, I see, I see the, also the opportunities for true cross-disciplinary work. Uh, I think a lot of ocean research has been extremely siloed. So if you go to a, a marine lab, they have one research group in the next office, another research group that doesn't, they don't really even talk to each other about the collaborative potential. And, and I'm seeing more, not just in words, but actual transdisciplinary work going on. Um, and that's kind of, you know, back to Blue Mind, we, we brought together uh, ocean advocates, water advocates, uh, explorers with uh, brain scientists, with neuroscientists, with psychologists and, and uh, behavioral specialists. Um, and that's starting to happen. You know, I, I think scientists are learning to communicate better. Uh, there are courses for scientists to communicate better um, that weren't, didn't exist 25 years ago. You know, scientists weren't asked to communicate well. That's probably why a lot of us became scientists, so that we could just, you know, stick our heads down and stay in our labs or stay underwater. Um, that's that's not acceptable anymore. Uh, so, well, we uh, we thank you for being such a great scientist, but an impeccable communicator. 
Um, you know, you're, you've done a number of, of TED Talks and TEDx Talks, and uh, there's lots of great resources online. I'd encourage, encourage people to, to check out. Um, do you know how many TED Talks you've done, TEDx Talks? Uh, six or seven, I think, something great. like that. Yeah. So no one's got any excuses not to be able to go and dive a little deeper into the YouTube bubble if they'd like to. Um, hey, lucky for you, we are going to go into turtle territory now because um, it does sound like that was a big focus of your of your scientific studies and research. Um, love to know a little bit about what you took out from those years of study uh, into the the sea turtles of our beautiful ocean um, and what we know about them now, what we still don't know. Just give us a nice little uh, dose of, of, of your turtle nerdiness. Yeah, so back when I started studying sea turtles, kind of I also grew out of a childhood uh, beyond fascinating, maybe a childhood obsession with turtles. I don't, I can't really explain the why of that, but I absolutely was. And um, so it made sense as an adult to, uh, as a graduate student, to focus on, on, on sea turtles. And but back then, there, you know, there were so many mysteries. We didn't know hardly anything about what turtles did in the water. Almost everything we knew, uh, we knew from studying them on the beaches, from walking, literally walking at night with flashlights and maybe some coffee and staying up all night with a notebook and observing them. And so I wanted to contribute to the big unknown, the big you know, sort of black box of turtle life, which was at sea component. So I started using satellite telemetry, radio telemetry, Critter cams, which used to be giant, now they're little. Um, we use molecular genetics and then just regular old flipper tags uh, to try to decipher the 99% of their lives, which was at sea. So that, as a scientist, that's what I wanted to contribute to. And I got sucked into studying the turtles, but then realized that I could spend decades publishing papers and attending conferences and a really nice career while watching these animals go extinct if I didn't do something um, on the conservation side. And that, you know, that at the time, that was uh, not a popular thing to do, to be a, a scientist slash conservationist or an advocate or, God forbid, an activist. Um, it was considered career suicide. So did career suicide and decided to, uh, for the first time, I've done it seven times, I decided to um, do that and stick my neck out and say, look, we're, we're going to study extinction if we keep doing what we're doing. And so we, our team, at least in, in um, Baja California, Mexico, we started working very closely with turtle hunters um, and collaborating with the so-called enemies. Uh, and coming up with plans to not let the black sea turtle go extinct. And um, there's a lot to say about the approach, but it was more um, humanity. I wouldn't even call it social science because we weren't studying people. We were just, we were collaborating with them as partners. And that's not social science. That's not an academic thing. That's, a, that's making friends and building trust. Um, and working from a place of dignity. Those are all words I never learned in school. I mean, never learned in 
you know, as a, as conservation tools, but that those were the things that were love, dignity, trust, uh, you promise you're going to do something, you better do it. Uh, especially if you made the promise to the fishermen that you're working with, uh, who have crossed the line to work with you as you have to work with them. Um, it's kind of the stuff you learn in kindergarten, I suppose, but applied, you know, to, uh, sort of urgent conservation. Uh, 30 years later, the Black Sea Turtle went from written off to downlisted, uh, which means it's going up. This year at our annual meeting in Mexico, I was just almost in tears looking at the data. Um, 30 years ago, we were told too late, no way, can't happen. There's no solution, they're gone. Now, they don't know what to do with all the turtles. They're just really, I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. If you like turtles and you're on that beach, you're going to be really happy. And uh, now really the, the local communities are saying, okay, are we done yet? What do we do now? And now the conversation's turning to how can we replicate the work that's been done successfully, not just in turtle world, but everywhere, any kind of rest restoration. What What's the recipe? What worked? Why we have so many bad news stories of declines, and then you've got this impossible situation that has been completely turned around. And by completely turned around, I'm saying that uh, with confidence. Uh, if you go to Michoacan and look at the black turtle population, you will never believe that there were fewer than 500 animals 30 years ago, you know, 27 years ago. And uh, part of the takeaway is this blue mind approach is um, not the red mind approach, which is usually what we take, that we don't have any time, uh, out of time, we're out of money, we need enemies, we need to fight the enemies, we need to destroy the enemies, and we need to win. Uh, we took a very different approach. We took our time, we worked with kids, we were told we were told it wasn't time for education. Um, now the kids back then are the adults <laughs> and they're running things. Uh, there was time and it works when you, when you work closely with people. And, and I don't, and I don't want to sound like I'm completely naive to the evils of the world and bad people. There are, there are sociopaths and psychopaths in the world, certainly. Um, they need to be moved out of the way and taken out of positions of power. Um, but the rest of us can collaborate and, and get stuff done. So, kind of, you know, we've done genetics and satellite track. We tracked the first animal ever to swim across an ocean. We tracked a, a loggerhead sea turtle from Mexico to Japan. That was really fun and. And then we use that story as kind of a rallying point for more collaboration and um, more education and um, more positive attention on these animals. And, um, that's kind of the turtle story in a nutshell, but I, I can go down any wormhole with turtles mm -hmm. and go for a week. Um, yeah, I bet you can. Um, <laughs> obviously, the, the turtle work was... Likely, I'm going to make the assumption um, a bit of a catalyst for the work that you've done on plastic pollution. Um, tell us a little bit about that and 
and how you're feeling about the you know the conversation and the the action to tackle this particular ocean challenge at the moment yes yeah, so uh, i became um extra aware of plastic pollution in the ocean um when we were tracking this turtle from Mexico to Japan, it's 1996. The uh, so loggerhead sea turtle put a satellite transmitter on her and she swam you know, about as straight as you can imagine an animal swimming across an entire ocean. And she went through this area uh, north of the Hawaiian Islands. And I was just curious what was going on out there. And so I started reaching out to oceanographers and um, a guy named Jim Ingram at uh, NOAA guy named Kurt Ebsmeyer, who does a lot of sort of beachcombing stuff, surface current analysis, and that led me to Captain Charlie Moore as well, who had been collaborating with them. So we started having this conversation about what's out there, and they were just recently discovering this thing that now everybody knows is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, which I personally think is a horrible misnomer. Um, it's not a patch. And it's not great. <laughs> it is in the Pacific, and it is garbage. Um, but uh, that got me interested, and uh, you know, kind of uh, excited in a in a concerned way about plastic pollution. So starting in 1996, I just started getting more. That was another lane, I guess, of my work. And um, it's, you know, looking back on it, 1996. Now that's you know nearly 25 years ago. We couldn't get anybody to pay any attention to the problem. It was just a closed door. And people would say, well, what are you going to do? Ask people to use less plastic? <laughs> They're like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are you going to do? Get people to litter less? Yeah. Um, I mean, that, but that was the response. Like, you can't do that. Nobody's going nobody's gonna to use less. Uh, nobody's going to use less plastic wrappers or... And um, so when I think about the plastic pollution, now it's a movement, I would say, and, and I, don't, I don't use that word lightly. Uh, the, uh, to me, it's amazing. I know a lot of people join, have joined more recently and are alarmed and think, wow, this is, you know, horrific. I'm, I'm kind of, I see it a, a little bit of a longer view, which I think, wow, it was horrific back then and nobody cared. Now you've got kings and princes and literally um, lining up to help and billionaires and celebrities and musicians writing music about it. Um, pe you know, people like you and me working, you know, kind of on the ground. But then is, I mean, so many scientists and young activists. And, I mean, it's, it's incredible. Uh, go back 25 years and it was a strong headwind and a tiny group <laughs> saying, we've got, hey, we've got a problem here. So there's been a lot of progress, um, long way to go before we get to a, uh, a plastic pollution-free world. I don't think a plastic-free world is really uh, a realistic scenario um, at, right at this point. I mean, obviously, it's, a, it's an aspirational goal, but... Uh, I think we can get to a plastic pollution-free world, um, and again, it's a value. It's a value equation. You know, we undervalue it, and so we just let it let it go. We don't. You know, it's it really is cheap stuff. 
and doesn't get it doesn't get um, brought back. And uh, that's a whole again a whole other, that's a mm. whole other course into. But yeah. I'm I'll it at I I remain completely fired up about the problem. Um, I have optimism because I've seen the needle move uh, and still we're still in the stage where it's going to get worse before it gets better in terms of uh, what's in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably feeling in a, a similar way in the sense that it is just extraordinary to see the the mass, the mainstream awareness around this problem now when you and I and many others, um, we, we desperately wanted that for such a long time. So it's something to certainly celebrate on the side, but absolutely no room for complacency. And I suppose where I, my mind was drifting during that um, last little exchange was that, well, if as many people um, who care about refusing the plastic straw or reducing their single-use plastic, were able to go deeper deeper to connect to their blue mind, what what would, what could the world look like? Yeah. I, I think that that marriage of the plastic pollution work and the blue mind work is really powerful. Uh, as I think the work on sea turtle conservation uh, together with blue mind is really powerful. I'll, I'll explain, explain what I mean. Um, if you're going to the beach because it is your medicine, it's the way you get through the day. If you're a, just say you're a first responder, your job is to run towards uh, accidents and help. Uh, and you need to relax in the ocean and the beach, your river, your lake is your, is your medicine that allows you to be at your best serving humanity. When um, you go to the beach and it's trashed, and instead of making you feel better and relax, it makes you mad and frustrated. Uh, and then you spend your time cleaning up that trash uh, rather than relaxing or just being grossed out or just going home because it's trashed. Um, that's a cost. And I think it's a real cost. Um, likewise, if, if you're a kid and you should be falling in love with nature and playing as your brain develops, because we know play and brain development go hand in hand. And what you're doing instead of going and playing at the beach is you're cleaning up disgusting trash. Uh, as my kids have told me, they said, we don't like going to the beach with you, Dad. We don't want to go to the beach with you anymore. And it was heartbreaking. And they said, why? And they said, because we always pick up other people's trash. It's gross and it's unjust. And I, I didn't even think about it, but I, I was making them hate the beach. That's not good. Like a generation of kids cleaning up beaches, learning that the ocean is trashed, does not create the unstoppable, I don't think. I think it creates an, a permanent association between the ocean and disgusting and unjust. So just on a personal level, I started taking my kids at least the equal amount of time to beaches I knew would be in pretty good shape based on the, the oceanography or a lack of visitors or a combination. So that they would fall in love with the tide pools and maybe want to become uh, 
marine conservationists uh, or citizen conservationists. And um, so I think, I think there's some, something there uh, in understanding human behavior and applying it smartly uh, to the problems. And you know, if you ask anyone who works in conservation, they'll say, this is all about behavior change, 100%. The whole game is all about behavior change. Behaviors of our institutions, behaviors of our entities, our, our agencies, our politicians, and our citizens, our consumers. Um, and then you, if you say, so what do you know about behavior change? Um, most conservation scientists will say very little, nothing. They told me it's 100% about behavior change. You don't know anything about behavior change. How many behavior scientists do you have on staff or on your board? Well, not generally. How many organizations have a psychologist on their staff or board? Very few. Uh, and I applaud those who do. Um, so there you go. There, so if you take Blue Mind and, and smash it into plastic pollution, you get a smarter team of problem solvers. Same is true for sea turtles, for sea turtle conservation. If you brought in um, people who understood that working on a turtle beach is therapy for volunteers, for the staff, uh, for urban youth, you, you will find a new source of funding, a new source of volunteers, a whole giant talking point about why saving these animals is important because that, that turtle beach is a, a school of empathy in a school of solitude and a school for peace of mind that urban youth need. And so your turtle population is going up, your funding disappears, but you need to keep work going. Uh, turn on the empathy school and start teaching empathy via saving turtle eggs and hatchlings. There's nothing, no better way to do it, really. And that's already what we're doing. So let's Let's connect the dots. So I think the, that Blue Mind Science and Practice, when it connects to our conservation work, uh, it's an accelerator and an amplifier and a multiplier. Uh, and I think most of the resistance comes from a misunderstanding of neuroscience and psychology. And people think it's soft in some way or touchy-feely. Um, in fact, it's the hardest science you're ever going to encounter, most likely, uh, unless you start studying astrophysics, uh, then neuroscience would be second, second to that. Uh, but it's hard science. It's chemistry and it's physiology and it's anatomy and um, it's as high tech as you want it to be. Um, and it's data driven and it's clinical uh, and it's really useful. So um, that, the, the broader movement of understanding nature as medicine, nature as therapy, nature as good for our minds and bodies, uh, is primarily focused on green space. We're generally talking about here is blue space, water, in all of its forms. But it's catching on, and I think, I think that's, that's a place where I find optimism is that when, when we do connect those dots between public emotional health, mental health, and the health of our oceans, the uh, beach walks, 
turtle projects, surf therapy, dive therapy, kayak fishing therapy, um, all of those things. We kick that value equation into shape a little bit more in the process. Um, and there's a lot of so much exciting potential there. I mean, I get my, my head gets going on all the cool projects, all the cool thesis projects um, that could be done basically on every beach in the world. Uh, and to, you know, to bring it back to our current pandemic, um, I think people are becoming acutely aware of how much they value their minutes in the ocean or on the beach or in the park and it's taken away and uh you don't you don't need this book you don't need to read a 300 page book with full of science when somebody takes your your ocean away that is allowing you to deal with the stress of the stress of modern life that you already had let alone under this sort of new reality uh, so back to that value equation, you know, I think, I think hopefully we can harness some of those insights uh, that are bubbling up right now. Well, um, who knows, there may be budding neuroscientists tuning in or people who have the capacity to support more neuroscience research. But what we do know is those people that have listened to this point of the podcast are are pretty on board so the least we can do is is amplify your work um and build this movement so how about you just sort of give us a bit of a snapshot into how you are building the movement some of the work you've done um, and what people listening can do yeah i've i've taken kind of a weird approach um compared to a lot of other my peers uh, i've worked with big organizations and small organizations and um, done, done the, the kind of regular approach to going to foundations for grants. And with Blue Mind, there, there really is no org. There's no organization. Um, there's no staff. We get no grants. <laughs> we have no big, big sponsors or donors. We've crowdfunded it with a relatively small group of patrons uh, through a platform called Patreon. And if anybody is interested in that, process i'd be happy to to share what i've learned what's worked and what's not worked um so um our goal is to create common knowledge and and put these ideas into your hands so if you're working on a turtle project and you say wow blue mind is cool i agree i'd listen to your conversation you guys and i agree i would like to plug blue mind into my turtle project we'll help you we'll give you all everything we know and hopefully you'll supplement that body of knowledge with what you find out uh, freely. It's free. So um, it's kind of like Blue, Blue Mind is just a, an ingredient that needs to be added to a lot of different work and in conservation, but also in, in health and in parenting and education and design architecture. Um, so that's the approach, is to kind of create the ingredient, make it available, um, give this thing a name. Blue Mind is giving something that's very intuitive and ancient uh, a name, which is helpful. Uh, Cambridge Dictionary has just recently proposed Blue Mind as a new word 
so Brilliant. if you want to help, you can vote yes. <laughs> yes, it, yes, it should be in the dictionary. Um, you, if you want to be a patron, a dollar a month uh, is wonderful. Um, and so we stay as independent as we can. But this idea of uh, common knowledge, I think, is important. And if you have a minute, I'll drill into that. The, uh, so common knowledge means that you know what I know, and I know what you know, and you know that I know what you know, and vice versa, if you follow me there. Mm-hmm. Um, shared knowledge means I've, I've put the knowledge, it's on Wikipedia, I shared it. I don't know who knows it, I just shared it. It's free, it's out there, it's on the wall, it's on the poster, but maybe nobody reads it, or everybody, I don't know. And then private knowledge is kind of the most restricted. I'm, I've trademarked it. I've locked it down. This, the recipe is a secret. It's in the file cabinet. No, you can't have it unless you pay me. And even then, I might not give it all to you. And so what we've learned, well, Steven Pinker at Harvard, psychologist uh, and colleagues, published a paper on common knowledge. And they found that when knowledge is private, collaboration is at 15%. When knowledge is shared, it goes up to 45%. But when knowledge is common, collaboration jumps to 85%. So when we have common knowledge, we have collaboration, we have trust, Um, we're on the same page, we get more done uh, as a society. And so our goal is to make Blue Mind common knowledge across all of the nine sectors we work with, conservation and environment being one of the nine, health being one of the nine. And to do that, you need translation. So the Blue Mind book has been translated to 11, 12 different languages and formats, Um, many more to go. Not everybody reads books, so we create films. We ask artists to create Blue Mind memes. Um, We use the Blue Mind hashtag. Uh, people quote from the book on their Instagram posts. We've um, had, uh, uh, you mentioned TED Talks and um, an annual summit, which we make, we live stream that. So we're on the 10th, the 10th annual summit this year. Um, we do workshops and keynotes, and we've probably reached a billion people via earned media, so print, uh, TV, radio, podcasts. Um, globally. Uh, the biggest women's magazine in India uh, that most Indian women have grown up reading called Femina. They call Blue Mind the top wellness trend for 2020. And so it's wow. it's sinking in, right? So the, the goal is not trademarking, selling an idea, privatizing it. The goal is common knowledge. Um, so We'll, we'll consider this a success if kids know what Blue Mind is and they don't even know how they know what it is. It's something that they learned in school and they learned it at home. They learned it from their aunts and uncles and they learned it from their friends. And they know if they're having a bad day, go to the water. They know if they want to have a more romantic day, go to the water. They want to be more inspired and creative, go to the water. And that if that water is limited in terms of access, they need to fight for that access, whether it's pollution, fence, a wall, uh, 
or a government saying you're not allowed to go in, or in some countries, based on your gender, women aren't, women aren't supposed to surf. So that's an access issue. Um, so common knowledge, which means widespread universal understanding of Blue Mine, access to your Blue Mine, whatever that means where you live. So in Arizona, or you know, in, in the smack dab center of Australia, it's a different conversation than it is along the coast, obviously. Um, and then a practice. So wherever you are, what is your daily Blue Mine practice? Is it your bathtub, your shower? Uh, is it the river nearby? Is it surfing or, or is it diving? Uh, is it just a, a walk to the fountain in New York City? And having lunch by it, because um, the research is clear, it's good for us. It's good for it's good for us socially. It's good for us emotionally. It's good for us physically. No question. We're not. I'm personally not waiting on any more research. Uh, there will be more. It will be cool. I will read it. Super fun. I'm not waiting for researchers to tell us that blue mind is real. We're ten years in. It is. Uh, so now it's about kicking it into into that that um, common knowledge, uh, you know, common access, global access, and universal practice. Awesome. Well, I think we're going to uh, wrap things up pretty soon, Jay. Um, you sort of close out Blue Mind with some pretty strong words there around our planet's waters are worth fighting for risking everything for and standing up for. So it's pretty clear to me and to everyone listening in that you certainly have held those those words, that sentence, um, and, and delivered it to the nth degree. Um, what can others out there do to, to really encapsulate just that, to, 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 to stand up for our beautiful planet Ocean? You know, I, I don't know. Um, I'm not going to try to answer that for anybody other than myself. Um, but I, I'll ask you, if you're listening still, <laughs> uh, what's your water? Like, what's the water that you love? Like, what's the water you dream about? What's the water you first fell in love with? Uh, what's the water that makes you feel whole when you're feeling less than whole? And what's the water that you would say is your best friend? Um, what's its name? What does it feel like? Who took you there? Um, what does it need from you? And uh, whatever the answer to that question, what is your water, the water you love, water that's your best friend, what does it need from you? Do that. Don't let anybody stop you from doing that. I don't know what that is. I don't know what your water is. I don't know what it needs. You know that. Uh, I know you do. You know exactly what your water needs. Um, need more turtles, maybe? <laughs> does it need less plastic? Uh, does it need a few more kayaks? Uh, but just do pick that pick that thing that you just thought of that your answer to my question, and and don't let anybody stop you from doing that. And that's 
that's it. I, I don't really like to give like 50 ways to save the ocean. I don't know. Uh, you're not going to listen anyway. If I give you 50 ways to save the ocean, you're going to forget 49 of them. And the one that you remember, you're not going to do. So um, I would yeah. say, yeah, that's my, <laughs> that's my, it's not a dodge. It's just, a, uh, it's just my answer. I like it. I like it a lot. Um, look, Jay, thank you for all the work that you have done and do do now and will continue to do. I think you are a remarkable um, you know, academic and incredible communicator. And just thank you so much for your time today on the podcast. Do you want to give any last closing words or suggest where people can find out more about you? Um, I, I'll, I have something I want to say. I want to say thank you. Uh, you've been uh, uh, an inspiration to so many of us, and uh, um, from a distance, sometimes you know, from a world away, and uh, and because we are in in this social distancing mode, I would normally I would normally hand this to you uh, physically, but yeah, here you go. I can only um, I can only give it to you virtually because of. Um, certain regulations related to this virus. Uh, but I, I would love love to hand you this blue marble one of these days. Um, just a small gesture of gratitude. And, and um, uh, yeah, really, I think um, the ocean brotherhood and sisterhood, uh, it's a bond that, you know, I think we're, um, that, that keeps us all going. So thank you. Thank you so much, mate. Enjoy your evening. I'll enjoy my day. I'll definitely be going and playing in Planet Ocean and expanding my blue mind. Excellent. Take the ocean out of